Hello and welcome to the programme. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Thank you for the billet, dude, that you sent. That, that, that was... Um, House mattress were amazing, weren't they? Eating with the mud, picking up the yeah. mud, eating with grabbing in their mouths. Yeah, they mix it with saliva to make the little mud the bricks. Who is it in and out of the great fate? Yeah, no, probably. Yeah, on As always, opinions. when we come on air on the Monday night, Aina and Niall are having an old chin wag. What are you talking about, guys? Well, we're talking about Loch Derg and Donegal, if you must know. I must know. The listener must know because they kind of overheard you. <laughs> What's going on in Loch Derg? Oh, no. Well, apart from the usual, it was house martins that were diving into banks of clay and mud apparently, as Niall has been telling me, to repair their nests because their nests are made from mud and saliva and obviously the storms and things hadn't done them any good so they needed to have a, a repair job going on. Yeah, it's obviously late in the season but the House Martins would still be nesting. They'd be trying to get their, at least their final brood away before they head off on their migration. Where exactly they migrate to, we don't actually know. <laughs> Presumably somewhere in Africa, although the wintering grounds of the vast majority of the population have never been discovered. So I think that what they're probably doing in this video, because it almost looks like they're eating the mud, but of course they're not doing that. Um, they're mixing it in their mouths with, with saliva to make little mud bricks. And I was just speculating what I think is happening is that the, the, the strange weather we've had in recent weeks may have affected the integrity of their nests. They may be a bit rough around the edges, a bit the worse for wear. So they might be doing some repairs just to make sure that those eggs or chicks are as safe as possible. Might get them away one last brood before they head off on migration. Mm, and when will they leave? They normally would leave in September. It's not like um, all of a sudden they're gone like swifts do in, usually in early August. And like same with the puffins as well. Just click your fingers, they're gone. They sort of fizzle out over a longer period of time. But usually in September we'd see them go. The swallows, to which they're closely related, they tend to go, the first one's around the same time, but their migration is even more prolonged than that. And you get some lasting well into October. Well, now the house martin, the swift, the swallow, how can you tell them apart? Well, and there's another one in the mix too, another one called the sand martin, which sand we have martin, as well. Of course, yeah. But you don't <laughs> see those too often unless you're around sandy bank areas. Yes, that's true. Or maybe along along um, you know some river and waterways. But the, the, the thing with it, with, with mall is, well, first of all, let's take the swift. So the swift, although it's superficially similar to the other three that we mentioned, it's not related to them in any way. It's a completely different family of birds, actually more closely related to hummingbirds than it would be to, to the swallows and martins. Uh, they are much larger. They're about roughly twice the size of a swallow and you'll never see them perched or landing, landing anywhere. They can't actually walk properly. They, they can grab onto brickwork and high buildings with their feet, but they can't walk or perch. Uh, and so they're always in the sky when you see them and they're all As dark. As we discovered last week listening to Aina's conversation with your colleague. Indeed, absolutely. And uh, so, so they're, they're birds that you tend to hear screaming over cities and urban areas and towns and villages during the, the middle of the summer. And the other one too then, people are always mixing them up, aren't they? The house martin and the swallow and they, they think house martins are swallows. Now, why is that? Why do why do people mix them all up? Well, I suppose in a sense. It's not incorrect to say that house martins are swallows because they're a species of swallow. They're in the same family. When we say swallow, we mean the bird that's known globally as the, as the barn swallows. That's our swallow. So you're quite right in it. Um, they have um, different strategies and slight different plumage as well. So both of them are predominantly dark above and pale below. The swallow has a lovely red face, dark red. It's hard oh, to see that. Because, well, well you, you might see, notice the difference when you realise that the face of the house martin is pure white. So if you see them flying overhead, you would notice that white face. So the absence of the white face 
is how you might identify it. Um, but probably the easiest way is to look at um, the upper back, if you can see that. And they're often twisting and turning, so you will get a view. The house martin has a white patch on the lower back, a bit like a sugar lump. That's what it looks like. The swallow is uniquely dark above. looks black from a distance. Up close, it's actually really intensely dark, dark, glossy blue. Same with the, with the house martin. And it's the swallow that has the long tail streamer. So they have a, almost looks like a knitting needle coming off the corner, each corner of the tail. Now, only the adults have that. The young don't. So they're a little bit harder to judge. But, but isn't it the nesting is what yeah. gives them away, essentially? That's it. Um, so often people will say, I've got swallows nesting uh, in a mud nest under the eaves of my house. And they're always going to be house martins because swallows don't do that. Swallows build a nest with mud, but also intersperse it with dried grass, a bit of a structural strength there. And they yeah, would, and the swallows don't stick it onto something. It's kind of like a cup sitting on a rafter or something. It could be. It could be yeah. sitting on a shelf or a rafter. I've seen them actually using an old coat hanger in a shed as some sort of support. So they do look for some sort of structural support there. But it's always inside a, a human-built structure. So it's inside a shed or a barn or a garage or a porch. What the house martins do is they make a nest that's more, more intricate, larger, more dome-shaped, uh, and it is pure mud. There's no straw or grass mm-hmm. in it. And what they do is they fix it on the outside of a building, usually under the eaves, somewhere it's sheltered quite or high over up. the door when you come out in your, in your more Sunday finery. This <laughs> woman was telling me that when the summer comes, she's never able to go out the back door because that's where the house martins are, are nesting. And with unerring accuracy, her good hat gets destroyed every day. <laughs> and we do get people contacting the programme and contacting Birdwatch Ireland as well, asking, how do I get rid of these awful birds? How can I stop them nesting and messing up the place? Of course, we're champions of these birds. We absolutely love them. They need all the help they can get because our populations are declining for various reasons. But from from my point of view, a little bit of droppings maybe on the wall or even on your Sunday best, it is honestly a small price to pay for the services they give us. They're beautiful to look at. They're really engaging. But they're also hoovering up all sorts of midges and mosquitoes and other little flying nasties that can cause us problems. I so don't know why people can't keep an umbrella by the back door and when they're going to go out, put up the umbrella and then when they get to the shed, put it down again and they have protection going in and out. I mean, if you want to do it, you can. And if you want to complain, there's always a good reason. Henry Ford was right. Was he? Yeah, he said if you want to do it or you don't want to do it, you can think of perfectly good reasons to justify either no, right. <laughs> what I What I find most amazing about these birds, we take the swallows that are nesting all over Ireland at the moment in our sheds and barns and porches. And what they're going to do in just the next few weeks, they're going to undertake this massive migration all the way down to southern Africa. I remember uh, Eric Dempsey did that wonderful documentary yeah, all about egg them. to Africa. Um, and it really brought home to me just that amazing journey that they make because we're only a part of the lives. So we only experience a part of the lives of those birds. And the journeys they undertake are amazing. But I always find it amazing to think that, you know, a swallow flying around our back gardens might see a cat. And then in a few weeks' time, they'll be in Southern Africa flying around lions and leopards. It's kind of amazing. I think they must come back the following year and think, call that thing a cat. That's pathetic. <laughs> but on the other hand, they're Irish because they're born here. And wherever you're born, that's where you're from. That's they're where you're from. Africa. Indeed. OK, lots of news about birds in the last week alone. Let's talk a little bit about the emperor penguins. What's going on with the emperor penguins? It was all over the news on Thursday night last Yes, emperor penguin, a really impressive bird. Breeds further south than any other animal on the planet. They breed right in the heart of Antarctica. Uh, you would think they'd be really inhospitable there, and it is, but the big advantage to them is that there are no predators, and they're so well adapted to that, to life in very cold conditions, uh, that they can thrive. Well, normally they can thrive. And in fact, they don't even nest there during the Antarctic summer. The main nesting is during the winter, when it's so dark and cold. Now, what's happening is obviously climate change. We know it's affecting the polar regions very, very severely, and unfortunately, it seems the most recent breeding season for these emperor penguins has been really nothing short of disastrous. We've seen some 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 huge huge losses, and um, it's really really um, really really scary to see it. Um, we know that um, based on that current modelling that they're saying, they think that um, perhaps over ninety percent 
of the colonies will be more or less extinct by the end of the century if global warming continues as is predicted at the moment. It's really, really shocking. Yes, and you would think if they're only sitting on the ice and the ice is all gone, couldn't they just sit on the, on the whatever soil is underneath? But I suppose it's moving. They don't fly, they have to walk. And walking on ice is quite different to walking on rocks and stones, which is what will be left when the ice is all gone. That's true. And I think that, but, but the biggest problem of all has actually been what's, what's been happening. The ice would, should remain frozen the whole time. And what's happening, it, it isn't. Um, adult penguins, that's not a problem for them because they're amazing swimmers. They have perfectly waterproof feathers. But we, we've all seen those, those images of these free fluffy, cute, down-covered uh, little penguins, or quite large actually. Um, now that's an amazing insulation to keep them warm in the Antarctic winds, but unfortunately it's not waterproof. It takes several weeks for the, or several months indeed, for those waterproof feathers to appear and cover their bodies. And what's happening is the, the sea ice and the land-based ice too is melting sooner than it should. It's leading to their, them taking on lots of water. They're, they're becoming waterlogged, the down is becoming sodden. Then this exposes them to the cold wind. They get hypothermia and they die very quickly. I can't look at an emperor penguin without thinking of Morgan Freeman. The March of the Penguins. Anyway, we'll come back and talk a little bit about the Ospreys later on. We've been following that story now for a number of years. But I want to talk to you, Aina, about ladybirds because we're going to hear a big interview you've done about beetles and a book about beetles. But I had a ladybird on my arm last week on one of the finer days we had. I didn't pay any attention to it. The next thing I knew, it bit me. Poor Derek. Yeah. (laughs) I haven't been the same since. Well, they don't generally bite people, to be fair. First of all, the one that does the biting most frequently, if, if ladybirds bite frequently, is the, the invasive species, the harlequin, which is probably just the same size as our seven-spot ladybird, but has many more spots, or less spots, or fewer spots, or orange spots. doesn't even have the decency to have the same number of spots on each one. And they bite because... You said it was one of the good days, so they're thirsty. Apparently when they're very short of water, they land on whatever it is and they, they're actually, yeah, they're beetles, they have biting parts, I mean, they're, they're carnivores in, 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 in real life. So obviously they decided you were a nice juicy chap mm. with a lovely thin skin and they would be able to get a drink out of you. Now, unlike other things that bite you for your blood, they don't give you any kind of anti coagulants or any kind of saliva. No, no hive, like no that. rash, no so red you spot, won't get, nothing. You won't, get, you won't get any, you know, so the, from that point of view, it's not the same as being bitten by something that you could have an allergy to. So you just grin and bear it, wash it under the tap and flick the thing off. Mind you, if it's a harlequin, you can squish it because it's an invasive species. Not only is it biting the legs of Derek Mooney, but it also eats other ladybirds, our own native species. Yeah, well, I and didn't actually count the cricket. spots because it happened so quickly, I just brushed it off immediately and I thought, oh my God, I never knew they did that. But anyway, I have another question which concerns both both of you. So you said there it's a beetle, Lena. Is it a beetle or a bird? And if it's not a bird, why is it called a ladybird? Well, it, it's clearly not a bird. I'm going to say that here. I'm going to stick my neck. I think, I think we've, we've concluded that much. No, it's a beetle, pretty much like any other. They just happen to be particularly brightly coloured. At least most species are the ones that are most famous, at least. Um, but apart from that, they really are very much like any other beetle. They have the same um, body parts. They have that. Uh, the, the, they have the two pairs of wings, which is indicative mm-hmm. of the hallmark of insects. And though in that case, what's happened is one of those pairs has become hardened and is no longer used for flying. It's the 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 wing casing that protects the other the other ones. That's the, the, the colourful part we see on the ladybird. Uh, I think also that they kind of look a bit cuter to us than other um, that other beetles do because they tend to have these white spots on the front that to us look like big eyes and makes them look quite cute. When you look closely, you realise that's not their eyes at all. It's a marking on their, on their shell or their carapace and their eyes and their little heads are actually very beetle-like and, and, and quite small compared to that. But um, yeah, they're beetles like any other. Isn't that right? Yeah, right, but yeah, why but are they called a ladybird? That's what I'm asking. Yeah, well, I, 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 I mean, I know they're not birds. 
ladybirds. <laughs> I was throwing it out there in the hope you'd actually tell me well, why maybe, they're called well, ladybirds. Well, yeah, we, have to, we have to keep people at the end of their seats waiting. Exactly. There's no point in telling them from immediately. Lady, because it's Our Lady, and Our Lady was often portrayed in pictures and paintings centuries ago, wearing red clothes, wearing brightly coloured mantle or a shawl or stole or whatever the name of the clothes were that women wore then. And as a consequence, it being red, then it was, it was that was the lady. It was Our Lady's Beetle, Lady Beetle it was called. And then that was turned into Lady Bird because it could fly, actually. That was why mm-hmm. it was called Lady Bird. Now, America, because Americans can't speak English properly at all, they call it a lady bug, as if it mm-hmm. were a bug. A bug is a germ that gives you the flu, or else it's a particular type of insect, but it isn't. All everything isn't a bug. So it's a lady bird called after Our Lady, a bird because it flies. And if you, apparently in the olden days, if you killed a lady bird, just why you didn't kill it. I didn't kill it. The cows would give blood instead of milk. They'd oh give my red goodness. milk. Mm-hmm. And that's the Irish name for it. And indeed the same name in Russian and the same name in some other European languages. It's called Boeing J, God's Cow. So it's God's little cow. And um, this is why I presume that was the pish rogue about the milk going red. But yeah. anyway. What were. was it the Corrigan brothers sang about Mooney Goes Wild? It's amazing what you learn on the Mooney show. Remember that? <laughs> there's a, there's a great one for you. Anyway, there. you may have noticed that Richard Collins' voice hasn't appeared yet. It's about it. He's not here in the person and he's not joining us as he normally does from his home. But he was out doing a report for us during the week. He was in Fairview Park where he happened upon a local man feeding a grey heron. We call him Heno the Heron. Heno? Heno, yeah. Big God. And how long are you looking after Heno? Three or four years, you know, Are since you? you, yeah, just to start walking the dog. And, and whenever I have scraps of food, like Monday, when we have chicken on Sunday, there's a bit, as you know, skin and, and a bit of. Perfect. He loves that. He loves that, yeah. does he? And what about the dog? Does the dog frighten him off? No, no. He's, he's around here somewhere. But he actually knows me. He's up over on the roof or he's across the river there. Hmm. And he says he, we come, he'll he come on land. He knows where his bread is buttered. He, oh, does, he does, he does. He does. And tell me, now, do you come at the same time every day? Has he learned to... Lovely, yes. He knows to expect yes, you. Yes, yeah. That sort of thing. You, well, do, when you go away on holidays or something, do you worry about the poor old heron won't no, get any food today? No, there's other people that... Uh, Feed him as well. They're not in your league. Oh, though. yes, yeah, yeah. They're not in your league. He's very modest. You're very <laughs> modest. <laughs> and you just give him whatever you scraps you have, and he'll eat anything. That's an interesting bite of side. He won't. He don't think he did the likes of bread now, you know, or potatoes, or it's mostly meat and chicken and, you know, mm. that type of. No vegetables. I don't think no he'd eat no. Or vegetables. No, he that won't eat his vegetables. He's very boring. Well, then, what about the opposition? All these gulls—they're all around the place. Well, they... I have to try and hoosh them away because, yeah. as you know, they're, there. they're savages. They get there before them. You I know. I was watching you there, and there were a scrum of these fellas all around. Yes, they're much yeah. more forward than That's the heron right. would be. Yeah. He's a remarkable heron. They're normally very circumspect about coming close to people. But not the gulls. No. And the pigeons. As you see, yeah. people feed the pigeons with oh, bread. Yeah. They throw it. And uh, they come up very close to you. They nearly eat over your hand. You know? mm, yeah. yeah. Oh. We'll go on you in a minute. <laughs> God, you're at the beck and call of the birds and the dog. I know. And I was just wondering, I mean, has he been fed like this bird to be feeding? How many times a day would they normally feed, Richard? Not just once, surely. Well, a heron, if they catch a fairly substantial creature like a frog or something like that... That'd be enough for the day, do you think? Well, they can sit back for a few hours then, yeah. you see. Um, that-
it's great if you're if that's the, your way of feeding. But if you're a pigeon, you're wanting bits. Of I'm seed. not interested in the pigeons, but I'm wondering if you're feeding him at around quarter to eleven every morning because he's gotten used to this kind of yes, time. He yeah. knows you're going to be coming yeah. around. You've habituated him to it, or he's habituated you. Me. <laughs> but as I said, there, you look, if, if well, will, he, will then, he actually want to be fed again later on? Oh, he would. Yeah, he would. So would you yes. feed him twice? In no, the day? no, no. I no. only I only walk the dog once a day. I wouldn't have the food either. You know, yeah. it's, it's mostly. Scraps yeah, off the yeah. table, you but know. It's a substantial lot you gave him just now. I was, I was oh, impressed. Oh, and he'd eat more actually, yeah. He would. It, it, and then if there's some food that would go out of date, yeah. that I'd know he'd eat. Oh, but, I mean, yeah. It's great to see that the yeah. food going like that. Yeah. Well, I think their gut is a lot stronger than ours, isn't it? Uh, well, yes, but it goes through them fairly quickly because they have to fly. They can't be holding a big load of food mm. in the yeah. stomach. Does he bring yeah. along the wife? Although herons, they, 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 they <laughs> don't. I don't know that wasn't the wife. <laughs> well, is it funny? I, herons? I don't even know whether he's male or female. Yeah. That's no, right, Absolutely, Derek. yeah. yeah. Well, it, it, herons, apparently, they're very faithful at the nest, I'm told. But once they go away, they ignore each other. Do you see? Yeah. They, they, yeah. they don't seem to recognize each other out in the riverside but the other herons must cotton on to this guy's handout you know yeah. surely you must have a few disciples coming in here now have you not I've never seen two here together to be honest now I've seen two out by Clontaff or you know yeah, yeah. thank you very much indeed to Danny Rafferty a local man feeding the heron there in East Wall and to Richard Collins now speaking of the heron Niall people in Ireland often mistake the heron for the crane and I believe the crane we've talked about them on the programme before particularly the ones that were attempting to breed in the Midlands have actually bred this year it is breeding again just to say actually that they're not in the same family they look very similar through convergent evolution they have the long legs the long neck and the long beak uh, and indeed in in many places in Ireland people now call the grey heron the crane mm. you know the, the name has been transferred because there's a long folk memory of cranes in Ireland but actually they're not that closely related at all they belong to, to, to quite different families of bird uh, but um, it is a really interesting success story at the moment because we, we had confirmation there just recently from Bordenamona at an undisclosed site uh, somewhere in the Midlands that but for the second year in a row, a pair of common cranes have successfully raised a chick to fledging, which means being able to take flight and therefore look after itself. Um, so despite the fact that the name is common crane, it's by no means common in Ireland. It once was. Um, but it was uh, once because the Irish word for it, Cor, is in a lot of place names as yep. well. And Lachlan O'Toole wrote a great book on the crane and he was going on about how many Cor place names there are all around the country. So Cor is the Irish name. Is it C-O father? No, C-O-R-R. Cor. C-O-R-R. Yeah, Cor. And now I see that that's what they're using on the heron now. Coriusk, the same word. But yeah. the place names, according to Larkin, were from the crane itself. But, I mean, you were saying they're not related. I mean, the crane's a migratory species and the heron is firmly fixed here. So they have different habits. I mean, every year, the, presumably the cranes flew over Ireland, looked down and said, oh, not staying there. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously they must see their habitat has now been made a bit suitable that they could nest in because they nest on the ground, don't they? They do. They're ground nesters yeah. and they like big open expanses of, of bog, essentially. So parts of Scandinavia for example where there's still extensive bogland they're quite common there as breeders there's quite a lot of them wintering in uh, in, in France at some of the lakes there there's quite a lot winter in the Iberian Peninsula um, so they're not um, necessarily terribly long distance migrants they're not all going all the way to southern Africa for example um, but they're kind of not as fixed in their patterns they will move around to different locations depending on, on the, the, the conditions that year uh, but what they're doing is as well in terms of their, their habitat it is quite different so yes the, the, the herons they, they like to be by, by water particularly 
Typically, they always find them by, by lakes or streams or by um, uh, by the sea. But they, weirdly enough, they nest in the treetops. Um, I remember, um, you both remember actually when we did the, the Dawn Course program a few years ago from St. Anne's Park, they were um, they were nesting uh, high in the what trees. Oh, they were there. leading lights in the solos. Uh, absolutely. The noises they and, and their, their, their relatives. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> That's the sound they make in the morning. Yeah, that's it. And with the little egrets and who are in the same family, they were nesting beside them as well. It was quite remarkable. Um, but the cranes are completely different. So they're by no means as closely tied to water. They do like to breed in bogs, um, particularly though I think because the open expanse of land without too many um, obstacles around means they have a good line of sight for any predator coming. They're absolutely massive. So a, a crane standing with its neck, neck fully extended and its bill up would be about five foot tall. We're talking a huge bird. A uh, wingspan of almost two and a half metres. So they are enormous. Um, but they're remarkably hard to find from on the breeding grounds because they're very shy, they're very wary of predators and of any kind of potential disturbance. Uh, and then in the in the non-breeding season, they're not tied to wetlands by any means. And Some this will, is the common crane. This is the common crane. This is the common, same common crane they have all over Europe. Yes. The common crane apparently was very tasty and mm-hmm. they, they did a lot of eating of it in medieval times. Yeah. So we have lots of bones of them in the medieval middens where they threw all their rubbish, their old rubbish dumps and the crane bones were there and, and they were kept as pets apparently too. Mm-hmm. You got, could get a gold chain or a silver chain and put it around your crane's neck and bring it for a walk. I'm sure you were, had one up on the Joneses with that. Uh, and I, I believe they were very common as pets in the medieval era in Ireland. Um, they were the third most commonly kept pet, um, according to, to contemporary sources. After dogs and cats. After dogs and cats, yeah. yeah you yeah. had your cranes. And um, there's a long history of them around. They're, they're illustrated quite famously in the Book of Kells as well. Mm. So there's a long heritage there and it's really good to see them back. A long way to go before we have a population fully recovered, but this is certainly a very good But sign. it's a start. Absolutely. As is the case with the ospreys yes. in Fermanagh, which seem to be making a comeback. As you know, if you listen to Mooney Goes Wild regularly, you will know that we've been following the story of the reintroduction of these birds of prey to Ireland. I was in Norway last month collecting the first 10 birds that were translocated to a secret location in Ireland. Now, that was done by the National Parks and Wildlife Service who are leading this project and their colleagues at the Norwegian Institute for Nature Research. The majority of those birds were released over the weekend from a secret location in the southeast of Ireland. So, in effect, they have fledged, and that means they're ready to fly. So, in time, when all ten birds are released, they will leave Ireland and head on their annual migration to Africa. And then it is hoped they will return maybe next year, the year after, or in three years when they're ready to breed back to that same location or the general vicinity and set up a breeding population here in Ireland. But not just those 10. Over the next five to six years, it's estimated that between 50 and 60 birds will be brought in to establish a breeding population on the island of Ireland. But what did we hear last Thursday? Well, it seems that this is happening already, naturally, in Fermanagh. A pair of ospreys bred and two to three chicks have hatched. We're going to talk now to Giles Knight, a farming scheme advisor with Ulster Wildlife. Giles has been keeping an eye on these birds for the past few years. So Giles, hello to you from Fermanagh. This is great news, not just for Fermanagh, but for Ireland and the Osprey. Hi, Derek. Hi, team. Um, yes, this is uh, absolutely brilliant news, what we've, uh, what we've discovered here in Fermanagh. A real once-in-a-lifetime type of story. And uh, for somebody like myself who's been passionate about wildlife all my life, this was a whopper. It certainly is. Ospreys are breeding here on the island of Ireland. But give us a little bit of background to the story. 
So basically, for many years, as, as many people will know, ospreys uh, have been seen in passage heading north and heading south in the, in, in the spring and the autumn. And there's been lots of sightings, but no confirmed breeding as yet. So what the story is this year is that these birds in Fermanagh produced chicks by naturally returning to, to their former um, habitat uh, in, in Fermanagh. And uh, this, this is amazing news with two, possibly three chicks fledged from this site. Now, how long have you been observing these birds? So I've been observing these birds for three years, this particular pair for three years. I have seen ospreys in Fermanagh for many years and I've often wondered whether we could ever end up with a situation like we have this year, whereby the birds breed successfully and, and really kind of uh, provide a massive shot in the arm for everybody who might have an interest in this story. Now, are you sure they're the same birds you've been watching for the last three years? And if so, how do you know? Are they ringed? Have they got tags on them? No. Uh, the, 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 these birds are, uh, are naturally returning to the place where they belong, really, at the top of the food chain. Um, I, uh, you know, it's only the last three years I can be sure it's the same pair because they return. They're very, very site faithful. They return to the same site every year, and they're very, and they're, they're pretty well n- n- always monogamous. Uh, consequently, it's, it's the same pair that has been coming for three years. Maybe when they first arrived in 2021, they were young birds, and finally this year, possibly as three or four year old birds, they finally succeeded in producing chicks and fledging them. This is the best kept secret in Ireland by all accounts because it seems that everybody was taken aback when they heard this news last Thursday. Listen, uh, as a conservationist, uh, it's a very fine balance you tread. Um, My instincts were screaming at me to not tell anybody. However, uh, there comes a point when the word will will get out and you know that it'll get out because of these birds' spectacular hunting behaviour in particular. uh, And you have to think to yourself, right, well, okay, let's manage this story story in in a positive way. And boy, do we need a good news story in conservation right now. It's a fantastic news story, but I'm just wondering, did you tell your colleagues in the National Parks and Wildlife Service about this? You must know that they are reintroducing ospreys to Ireland. Did they know? Well, listen, uh, the, the National Parks and Wildlife um, w- w- are w- well aware of, of the number of birds being sighted around the country. And yes, we are aware of the developing story regarding reintroductions on the south coast of Ireland. Certainly my uh, d- uh, director has been in communication with uh, with the head uh, um, uh, agents at, at, at that organisation to make sure that this wasn't a, a, a completely out of the blue. But it, it won't be anyway, because these birds have made nesting attempts in recent recent years in other areas, but this is the first confirmed report of breeding success, which is the big news story. So the habitat must be good. There must be plenty of food around for them. There must be good nesting sites for them. There's lots of trees and lots of water in Fermanagh. Uh, it's famous for it. Um, I'm told reliably that there are there are 5,000 uh, or so significant water bodies across the island of Ireland. Well, we have a good number of those here in this county. It's renowned for being a very wet place, as I can assure you it is. Uh, and these birds, as you know, hunt fish in ideally shallow water and uh, where they can see the fish from above. Uh, and uh, yes, there are plenty of trees in the county and really for many years the conservation community has wondered why it is that they hadn't returned sooner.
Hi Giles, it's Niall here from Birdwatch Ireland. A really exciting story and I can hear the excitement in your voice and how much you love these birds, which is really infectious, I have to say. I love ospreys myself and I love Fermanagh. I think it is, as you said, a very beautiful place, full of lakes. Um, I would think it would be paradise for a bird like an osprey. Why do you think it's taken so long for them actually to return and to nest? Because it would seem that there's lots of water there, presumably there's lots of fish there. What was the missing part of the jigsaw puzzle? That's a really good question, Niall, and I'm, sh- I'm not sure I, c- I can answer it. Uh, only to say that the habitat is in place, the fish are there, the birds that have a- arrived in the last few years weren't probably from here. However, as you know yourself, these birds travel through Ireland every year and they simply decided to alight upon Fermanagh to, to, to get this dynasty kick-started. Equally, uh, you know, a lot of the migration uh, re- records are made on the east coast of Ireland, so in many ways it's quite a surprise that they've uh, sort of come here and established uh, successfully. But uh, some of that is in the lap of the gods, so it's, uh, it's a bit of a mystery, but uh, we're very pleased to play host to them here and I need to uh, 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 comment upon the, the, the local farming community who I work with and everybody in the area has been very, very helpful and, uh, you know, welcoming to this spectacular species of, of bird uh, and uh, you know it really is a, a fantastic story for everybody concerned At this point I want to bring in Dr Philip Buckley from the National Parks and Wildlife Service he is part of the team reintroducing the osprey to Ireland and who received those 10 chicks just over 3 or 4 weeks ago now from Norway Hello Philip how are you? Good evening folks how are you? I'm fine thank you very much So Philip did you know there were ospreys breeding here in Ireland? Well, I was I was I was three quarters aware that they were uh, in the north, and uh, I had heard they were breeding there. And I think it's really, really good news. I mean, this is fantastic. After two hundred years, we have the species breeding again in Ireland. It's a landmark event that this has happened, and I think it's very, very encouraging generally, and very encouraging for the uh, reintroduction program that we are undertaking. So, I mean, hopefully this. Herald is the beginning of a natural recolonisation process. So that, that is really, really good. Yes, it means that you're going to have more birds to choose from when the birds that you release soon enough will come back to Ireland, hopefully, in a couple of years and breed because there'll be a greater gene pool on the island. Yes, exactly. I mean, the two, I think that the natural recolonisation and the reintroduction programme we're doing will you know not, they're not just compatible but like they'll they'll be mutually i suppose reinforcing or whatever the correct terminology is so it'd be it'll be obviously it'll be either process will take a considerable length of time having the two going on together which hopefully they will will make it uh, you know i suppose happen in a much shorter space of time and probably make it more successful in the long run Philip, it's great to see that that Osprey is getting this kind of attention in in the media and the story now from Fermanagh really just reinforces that. So many people are interested in that. Is that something that you're finding as well? Are people excited about this? Are people looking forward to seeing these birds returning to our skies? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think in general for raptors nowadays, I suppose indeed for biodiversity, but also for raptors in particular. I mean, the general public, not, it's not just kind of an interest now of specialists or, you know, ornithologists. I think the general public are very much behind us. And indeed, the, you know, the farmers and landowners that we talked to and we interacted with in getting the National Parks and Wildlife Service program up and running and we talked to a lot of farmers and other people. I mean, virtually without exception, they were all 100% behind this project. 
it's great to see how much people are welcoming this given that they were given the run 200 years ago and persecuted because the attitude that lots of people have towards wildlife now is one of wonder, one of excitement. So we must be doing something right over the last 25 years on the programme, Derek, when birds like this are welcomed back with open arms. People can't wait to go out and see them. They are positively appreciating the fact that if you have something at the top of a food chain, that means the whole of the food chain all the way down to the very bottom is in perfect health because you won't get top predators if the whole food chain underneath this and supporting them. So it'll be interesting to see now how they do and how quickly they will spread out given that the first beachhead has been formed, if you like. Yes, I mean, I couldn't agree with that more, you know. Um, and just to go back on on the whole thing about, you know, persecution and so on. I mean, when I first arrived here in 1989, buzzards were only to be found on the north coast of Antrim and Rathlin Island. And look at them now, do you know? And this is a sign of really a sea change in attitudes towards predators uh, and, 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 and fauna of this type. We are so proud of the fact that in a way that they picked for manna, the farmers that I work with, very similar to what Philip's just described, are extremely, you know, that's what, that's what that's what this is about: engendering community pride in in something really special, uh, and something that in years to come, once these birds become properly established in bigger numbers, people will come and see them. You know, look at the numbers of people that go to see these things in Scotland. It's a massive boom for tourism you know and and really uh, i couldn't have been happier the day i saw and, and knew that these birds had actually successfully fledged chicks thank you very much indeed giles we'll talk to you again and philip thank you too thank you thanks very much indeed bye-bye